Last Sunday morning, Jimmy Wynn came up to me, and Jimmy has become this very trusted voice in my life. He doesn't come often, but when he comes, whatever he says to me is usually unique and profound and gives great insight and instruction. He said, what God has told me to tell you is to go back to the beginning. That's amazingly not clear. Because I didn't know exactly to the beginning of what. I told you all a while back that I I started a new diet and I was trying to get back to my original weight, which was eight pounds, four ounces. (laughs) Pretty sure he wasn't talking about that far back. What was he talking about? Well, I was already preaching on Genesis on Sunday night, so I didn't think it was that. So I just had to just get quiet before the Lord and understand what's he talking about. As I began to just slow down long enough to listen to him, it became very apparent what God had asked. And so this morning, I'm going to go back through something that to many of you will sound amazingly familiar. Before I get to it, I need to pray for us this morning. Lord, I pray that as you begin to reveal truth this morning, as your message begins to emerge out of the scripture, that the spirit of timidity or hesitation or doubt or fear, each one, Lord, would be bound, removed from this place, that anyone and everyone here can deal honestly with you this morning. Everyone here can listen to gain understanding and to let it be personal to them and to know, Lord, that you spoke specifically to them this morning. To not dismiss this because they've heard it before, but to examine again, to look again into each individual life and to be able to be certain about what's before us this morning. So I pray, Lord, and bind that spirit of doubt, the spirit of fear, of being, even being timid this morning, that this is a day of honesty. This is a day to be honest before you. To put ourselves, our hearts open, our minds open, our spirits open before you to let you bring truth and revelation to our individual story because this is an individual Sunday. This isn't a message for the church. This is a message to the individuals found within this church this morning and to to those, however many they are, who will listen to this on the computer, that they will hear and personally examine that which is going to be shared this morning in Jesus' name. Some of you know Margie Joyner Kennedy grew up in this church, married Jimmy, and Jimmy was a pastor after a couple of other occupations and uh, died a few years ago. When you talk to him, Jimmy was amazingly focused. You didn't have to be around him long. He would, he'd ask you this question, do you know that you know that you know that you know? Do you know today you're standing before God? Do you know today that you are saved? Do you know today with this absolute certainty that you have done this, that you understand exactly what you've done? How did you become a child of God? How do you know that he's your father? What does the scripture say about that certainty? And I promise you, I don't raise this question this morning to make you doubt. I raise this question this morning to cause you to be certain. Because how tragic it would be especially based on a revelation that I received about two years ago of how many lost people there are within the church. How tragic it would be for us to to live a lifetime believing that I had this matter settled before God and to come to the reality that we didn't. 
And again, I don't say that to cause fear. I want to say it because I want you to be able, every moment of every day, to be able to say, I know that I know. That I know that I know. I want you to be that certain. Because it's only in that certainty that spiritual warfare begins. Because every moment when someone comes and makes you question, or something happens that makes you question, you're standing before God, you have to be able to go back to that certainty and say, I know what I know. So I'm going to take you this morning. What does the scripture say? I don't want you to process this question from the terms of being saved. I want you to process this question this morning as if you weren't. What difference does it make? If you process it as saved, then you're going to listen almost dismissively, almost irrelevantly that this doesn't relate to me. I ask you, based on the picture that God showed me, for you to listen and find that moment within this scripture when you say, that's how I know. That's the certainty that I have this morning. This is how I know, because this is exactly what happened to me. That looks exactly, sounds exactly what happened to me. Paul, over and over throughout Acts and through the New Testament, would go back and tell the story of that moment of his conversion. That moment on the road to Damascus. Because he used that as this marker in his life to say, before I was this way, after I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and after I was blinded, after Ananias came, everything changed. Dynamically different. Can we say the same thing? Do we have that mark of absolute certainty that this is the moment that we encounter Jesus? One of the reasons why church has struggled to have authority, to function as the church as God intended, is because most of us can't point back to the specifics of an experience that we had with God. Now we can talk about the experience that we had with the pastor. Or we can talk about the experience that we had with a family member or with a friend. But rarely can we talk about the fact, as Paul did, I met Jesus there. Yes, there were other people around, but he met Jesus there. He could remember the details of what Jesus said. He could remember exactly what Jesus looked like, and he told the story over and over. And most of the time, we've had an encounter with a pastor, encounter with a friend, encounter with a Sunday school teacher. But most of us cannot testify that I had an encounter with Jesus. I can remember what he said. I can remember what he did on that specific day. So let's look at the scriptures and understand to the best of our ability what the Bible says about this. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. Certainly a place where we would expect to go in this conversation. Romans 10 verse 8 begins. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture said, Whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this story of justification, the salvation of our spirit, begins and ends right here. It's the total story. It's the total picture. It is by belief 
It is by trust. It is by faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior that salvation comes. The outflow of that, the normal outflow of of that reality, that trust, that faith and that belief in Jesus is that we will live a life after it that's evident that that experience occurred. That our life after will look like the salvation that we experienced and that it should match. So how have we gotten this so wrong? How has the church so destructively altered the story and the plan? It's because of this. The scripture is clear. It says, for those who believe and for those who confess, and clearly it mentions both. It was in the scripture that I just read. Let me read it again. It says, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Belief and confession. The reason that we have so drastically altered this story is because we have focused on the confession and not the belief. So many invitations, so many times, especially with children, we got them to the point of confession to where they would actually say something that we told them to say. Use the ABCs from Vacation Bible School. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you're lost. Believe that Jesus saved you and confess it with your mouth. And there's nothing wrong with that teaching. The problem is, once we could get them to say those words, we put a check by their name and said, man, that's great, they're saved. And they're no more saved than anyone. They're not saved. Why? Because there was no belief. There was no encounter with Jesus. And we checked the box and say they're saved because they confessed. And most of the time they couldn't even confess it. They were having to repeat after us. Say, can you pray it? No, I can't. I can't pray it. That ought to, be, that ought to immediately be an alarm. Say, well, if you can't say it, well, just repeat after me. Because that's just as good. Just repeat after me. So we'd say it and they'd repeat it. And we'd put a check by and we'd say, we get this many saved in vacation Bible school, or this many saved in the revival. And the sad reality is now they believe that simply because they confessed something, the salvation has come. According to Scripture, it didn't come. Because it says there's two parts to that story. How strange it would have been for Paul to simply begin confessing that he had this encounter, just confessing something with his mouth, and nothing in his life would have ever changed. He would have continued persecuting Christians all the time, confessing that something was different in his life. The reality would have been that nothing would have changed. So for us, as we begin this, we understand that the reality is that it's not the confession with our mouth alone that brings us to salvation. It is the belief in our heart. It's what's going on in here that really makes the difference. So how do we know? Let's go a little further. I use an illustration with you pretty often. If there's a swimmer on a shore of a lake or or the ocean, and that swimmer begins to swim and gets out a quarter of a mile or a half mile, depending on their capability, he turns around and he looks back to the shore and something hits him. This shocking reality that I'm out a quarter of a mile and I can't make it back. On the way out... We would call this person a swimmer. When he turns and he looks back and he realizes I can't make it, he's not going to be a swimmer anymore. We're going to create a new category. He's a drowner now. Which of the two can you save? You have to save the drowner. You could come alongside with a boat with this swimmer as he's going out and say, get in the boat. I'm, I'm here to save you. What's the reality going to be? What's he going to say back? I'm perfectly fine. I don't need to be saved. I don't need to be rescued. Something changes when the swimmer becomes a drowner. 
What has become real to that person a few seconds before wasn't real, but now when he turns and looks back and realizes I can't make it, what becomes real to him that was not there before? Death. The word saved in the scripture is the word sozo. It means to rescue. What has to form in this person's heart so that the scream will come out? There has to be the reality of death. There has to be the reality of something that will form the scream so that the one who will rescue us will come. The majority of people saved within the church, based on the revelation that God gave me and a couple of others, at the same time gave the same revelation. We have been very busy saving swimmers, simply getting them to confess something without the reality of death ever hitting them. But this is the danger of small children being saved. Just say it carefully, but cautiously. There is no salvation until there is a reality of death. I could march around this room quoting Romans over and over and over. The wage of sin is death. The wage of sin is death. And I could go in this circle over and over and over. But until that travel, the 18 inches from my brain to my heart, and the realization that, oh my goodness, that's talking about me. That my sin will cause my death. And it's an eternal one. Until that happens, there is no scream. There is no cry for a savior. If there is no conviction of sin, and if there's no weight of sin that that causes death. Who brings us to that point? I know as a parent why we get anxious for our children to be saved, because we know, we read it everywhere, that the older they get, the harder it becomes. No, that's not the truth. The younger they are, the more easily we can convince them to say something that we believe brings the salvation. And again, we checked the box. It was late at night and and I was sitting in the living room and at that time in our house, the girl's bedroom was right next to it and I hear these feet flying off the bed and and coming running down the hall and here's Erin just flying up into my arms. And I said, Erin, what in the world has, has happened? And she said, I know that if I die tonight, I will not go to heaven. I will not see God. Now, she's already walked the aisle. She's already been baptized. She's already gone through it all. And in that moment, that reality hit her. There's a consequence to sin. There's a consequence to this life that I have not taken care of. And she was saved that night because there was a scream that formed in her. There was a reality of death that had hit her, and she knew that it was unresolved within her life. So the first question, did your salvation come? out of the reality of what the Holy Spirit did in you to show you and to bring the reality of sin, to bring the weight of death, which the Scripture creates, not me. I mean, the Scripture says it. Paul says it. That we've all sinned. That creates this universal category of sinners. And that the reality of that sin is death. Why did he tell us that? Why did he want us to know that? Why do we use that in our conversation with people? Because the reality is. That there is no salvation, there is no rescue until the scream forms. So the first question, the way you, you check this box and say, I know that I know, is that my salvation formed. I can tell you today, even as an eight-year-old, when I was saved, that there was a heaviness to the sin of my life. As I sat there beside my mother, she was right here at my left-hand side, sitting on the edge of my bed, I realized the weight of the sin that was in my life appropriate to an eight-year-old, but I knew it. And I can confess today that that is the moment of my salvation. I knew that day the reality of sin 
and the weight, because God would bring it appropriate for an eight-year-old, but I knew it on that day. So that's the first question, the first reality. Here are some scriptural examples. Listen to this. John chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading with verse 35. This man has been healed. He comes back to the temple. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. Notice in this that the salvation that came, the connection with God that came, came clearly stated by belief. Putting your trust in faith in Jesus Christ. We look at this next story in Acts chapter 8, in verse 37. Again, a story we know very well. It's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch had asked him, why can't I be saved right now? What stops me from doing this right now? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the answer says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What was it that brought salvation to the eunuch? What brought salvation to this man who had been healed? It was belief, 100% unaltered, unchanged. It was belief in Jesus Christ and what he had done. And then the most relevant one, Acts chapter 16, verse 30. Paul and Silas were in the jail. The jail doors have now been opened. They didn't run. They stayed there. And they had this encounter with the jailer who was about to kill himself. Acts 16, 30. They brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord to all them that were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all of his straightway. And when he had brought them into the house, he set meat before them in rejoicing, believing in God with all his house. When asked specifically that question, What must I do to be saved? What was the answer? And notice what Paul did not say. He did not say, if you will pray, then you will be saved. If you will repeat after me, then you'll be saved. The reality is that salvation comes by belief, putting trust and faith in Jesus Christ, that the blood of Jesus will cover your sins, will actually bring that salvation. So the second question after this first one, did, it, did your salvation begin with the reality of death, the weight of sin that would form the screen? The second one, was the transaction a transaction of faith? Notice what Philip said. If you will believe, how? With all your heart, uncompromised, unchanged, unaltered, will you believe in Jesus with all your heart? And many of us as Christians could say, I, have, I can check that box because I believe. Can you check the box with all your heart? Can I check the box with all my heart? Have I put my faith in other things? Or is it totally, completely, 100% in Him? Because you wonder why there's no matching life after? The number one indication that why there's no matching life after the salvation has come is because it wasn't with our whole heart. Whatever we give our hearts to completely, it's very hard then to separate our actions following from that which we've given our heart to. So if we didn't give all of our heart, it's very easy to live something after that looks very compromised. The second, 
is it a relationship born of belief and faith and trust? And here's the litmus test. This is Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. I find it very unfortunate. I hear it all the time. When somebody's uncertain about their salvation, they go to the pastor, they go to a friend and say, I'm just not sure. The litmus test that we have created is very simple. Well, did you ever pray? Did you ever say? Did you ever ask? Yeah, I did. Well, then, yes, you're saved. Don't worry about it. You're saved. What's absolutely missing from that conversation? Did you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? And Jesus, very clearly in Matthew 7, gives us this litmus test. And this is the one whereby I know and you know about your own salvation. Beginning with verse 13. He says, enter you into the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life. And few there be that find it. Let me read that again. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way, which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? So what's he asking? Do you go to a thorn bush to pick grapes or do you go to a thistle tree to find figs? So the answer is absolutely no. He's telling us this obvious answer that the tree is going to be indicative of the fruit. Or if you look at the fruit, it's always going to tell you what kind of a tree it came from because it's always, every time, a match. The fruit will always point to the tree. If that's not the case, then something's been tampered with. Verse 17, it says, Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. So what would create a good tree, according to Jesus? What would establish a good tree? Well, having an encounter with Jesus, asking him to be your savior, putting your faith and trust in him, knowing that you are saved. He's saying that if you're good because of that reason, if you're righteous because of that The fruit that comes out of you afterwards is going to be 100% indicative that you ate that fruit or that you are that tree and it's now producing that fruit. So his litmus test is a little different than what we typically say. His litmus test is this. It must have taken you an ability to hear from God to know that you're a sinner. Otherwise, how would you have known it? It must have been a voice of God that told you about a Savior other than that, how would we have known it? We hear around us, we hear words of men. It, it takes the Holy Spirit to penetrate that barrier and make it go inside. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, if that's the salvation that you received, then the life after should match that. We should still hear the voice of God. We should still know the work of the Holy Spirit. We should still have that reality within us. Because the salvation that established us as a good tree is also going to produce from it good fruit. Verse 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by your fruits 
you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of the Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have we cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever hears these things of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. When you hear these things and you know these things and you count them to be true of who Jesus is about the work of the Holy Spirit, our life afterward builds upon that which is solid. We know the truth. So my life is built upon something that is solid after that. The foundation is laid according to Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. There is no other foundation that can be laid other than Jesus Christ. But I built after that foundation, I built correctly on that foundation. So it's like a wise man who built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these things of mine and does not do them shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Here's this third question that you need to be able to answer. I need to be able to answer about my salvation. Does your life now match the reality of the salvation that you have? Part of the difficulty here is because we have removed from the church the sensational or the dynamic reality of God. We have made him unemotional. We've made him distant. We've almost removed the reality of the fact that he loves us more than we can imagine that love. The Bible even says that all of heaven stops and heaven begins to celebrate in that moment. Was it born out of the reality of what the Holy Spirit can do? A few years ago, Calvin drove by the house. I was standing in the front yard, and we waved. And I'm standing there in this moment. It was odd. And I knew I was supposed to follow him. So I got in my pickup, followed him to his house, and got out. And his part of the story was when I saw you, I knew I needed to stop. And I said, I knew I needed to talk to you. And on that day, in the back of his house, Calvin, under the reality of what God had just done, the weight of what God had just done, Calvin was saved in that moment. I can remember the specifics of that like it was yesterday. Because there was an encounter with Jesus Christ, God arranged, God ordained, God instructed, that very dynamic of God was in that moment, and I can tell that story over and over for the rest of my life because of the reality of what God did in that moment. I've watched Calvin come to the altar. I never claim his or my life or anybody else's after we're saved is perfect. But I do know this. That there's a reality of the weight of God in the work of the Holy Spirit after salvation like there was during that same moment. We can't live accepting sin. We can't live tolerating it as an ongoing part of our life because that's, this is ongoing confession. That if that's the case, then where's the Spirit of God who would never tolerate that being in my life? Why is there no obedience? Why is there no desire to be faithful to those things that God loves? The story afterward is designed to be a match. It was born out of the reality of sin, 
We entered into salvation by the reality of belief, trust, and faith, and nothing else. And we know it, because, and Jesus' litmus test is that if that's true in us, then it will produce the fruit that is evident of that salvation. There will be a match. The life after will match the moment of salvation, and the moment of salvation will match the life after. That's Jesus' litmus test. That's not mine. That's what Jesus says. That's how we will know the salvation has come. Again, this is not a day of timidity. This is not a day when being around people should bother you. This is not a day when a difference in age between a child and an adult should make no difference. Very personal. If this is your moment of reality, if this is your moment of confession to say, I know that that's not true of me. I know my salvation wasn't born out of an understanding like that. I know that I've put emphasis on my confession and there has been no belief. And the evidence is that my life after doesn't match. If you know this morning that you've never been saved, if you know this morning that that's not reconciled within you and that you can say, I know that I know that I know that I know, and that you this morning want to, by belief and trust and faith in Jesus Christ, if you want to make that decision this morning, based on the reality of the sin in your life and the wage of sin that is death, if you want by belief, not by confession alone, but by belief, if you want to be saved this morning, if you want the evidence of your life, if you want to have a moment that you can remember like Paul had a moment, like Calvin had a moment, like I have a moment, that many of you have those moments. This is not a day of timidity. 